truth of the Tathagata's words. All right, so today we're going to uh, take on concentration to this day from my childhood. I hear concentration and I think of that old game show when I was a kid, concentration. <laughs> oh, those were the days. <clears throat> so, Buddhism has a way of even creeping into our game shows. See? <laughs> but uh, in the spirit of <clears throat> of uh, uh, Dharma gates are boundless, uh, as you know, I often find uh, very appropriate to the occasion Dharma gates teachings in the. Uh, the comics, uh, it's one of the richest fields of Dharma teachings, in fact. So lo and behold, this morning, I'm going through the paper and, uh, and the Dilbert strip this morning is the perfect prelude to, to what we're gonna be talking about. So let me just, uh, there are only three frames to it. Uh, and it's just a dialogue between Dilbert and his uh, uh, pointy-headed manager. Dilbert asks him, do you prefer that I focus on one of my projects at the expense of all the others? Or, and then this, this is the second frame, or should I spread my attention across all of my projects and do low quality work on all of them? And then the final frame, he, he then, uh, uh, gives him the caveat, says, and your answer cannot involve magic. And then his manager responds, can I hear the choices again? <laughs> there we go. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> I should have known. I, I didn't need to walk you through it by reading it. Uh, Keith would pull it right up there. So obviously, uh, even before we get into this talk, hopefully everybody knows, well, of course, you can only concentrate on one thing at a time. Give it your full undivided attention. But if you have three projects, then you just organize yourself so that you can focus on one, one of them at a time and over whatever period of time, accomplish them all. So, I mean, that, that's easy. Doesn't even involve any magic, right? And uh, another kind of image that popped into my mind about taking what we're gonna be looking at this morning into more of a, a Zen setting in terms of how concentration overlays with, with Shikantaza, with Dogen's uh, view of practice. Uh, 
because our our concentration, our focus is on each forward step so that we're we're in motion, but our focus is stays with that motion where we are right at this time, right in this place. And I relate it to like being walking where we get on an escalator and we're we're walking. And and we'll make it an escalator because what common the way we commonly feel is is kind of like we're on an escalator that's that's coming down and we're trying to go up. Have you ever had that kind of a, a sensation that you're just uh, fighting fighting the flow, uh, trying to go against the flow? And there's there's the top level and the bottom level. So of course in Zen we we take those levels out. So there's just the escalator. <laughs> and now all of a sudden, this, this, this different distinction between upward and, and downward motion all of a sudden drops out of the picture. And we're just stepping one step at a time on the escalator. Won't even say up. It's just kind of like our Kinhin practice. Or if we uh, make our breath, our steps, kind of like zazen practice, if you're working with your breath, each 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 breath is like putting the next step forward, each inhalation, exhalation, and so on. And there's no, you know, top of the escalator, no bottom base to the escalator. You're just focused on each step, each breath moment, being present, fully and completely. So that's my little in introduction, Dilbert and the escalator. That kind of sets the stage for uh, jumping into Analayo and, uh, and the importance of concentration and underlying that is the importance, and we've talked about this before, the importance of being free of hindrances. So that's where we're going to begin. This chapter is devoted to the expression free from desires and discontent in regard to the world. That's the foundation for the practice of concentration. If we're not free from desires and discontent in regard to the world, you will not be able to maintain a focus. And yet, when we are free, our focus is, is present. That's it. You can immediately 
concentrate on whatever you choose to without distraction. But these desires and discontents pop up. And of course, the practice of, of all Buddhist meditation is to not get hooked by those, to be able to come back, to let them go and come back, be free from desires and discontent. And of course, the full list of the five hindrances goes is a little broader than that. It includes things like our our anxieties, restless mind, it's sometimes termed as, skeptical doubt, where we start doubting, why am I even doing this practice? What, it's, it's good for nothing, as Shahaku tells us. So, hey, <laughs> if it's good for nothing, let's, let's get on with the business of life, right? And of course, a biggie is slothful torpor. It does require energy to be focused, which is why upright posture, even if we're not doing zazen, I mean, upright posture is part of carrying energy with us constantly so that we can be focused, whatever we're doing. You know, so if, if you're... A student, and you're in class, you know, sitting up straight and you're at your desk is uh, pretty helpful in terms of being able to focus on what the teacher's uh, conveying. So this freedom from desires and discontent is where we start. Without it, uh, we might as well not even try to develop a consistent practice of being able to focus, concentrate. Whether it's one project, three projects, however many that pointy-headed boss gives us, uh, you're not going to be able to do it. You're going to keep being distracted. And of course, in our day and age, uh, the distractions are ever present. Thanks to our electronic uh, uh, playground that we we live in, that we wake up in, and and uh, we re retire for the day in. You know, it's ever present. So the. Uh, the uh, tendency to get pulled off of our con concentration, uh, it's, it's never been greater. So this, this working with the hindrances, as Analayo tells us, it's pointing to the development of mental composure which we can also look at in terms of being calm and settled. Mental composure when practicing satipatthana, mindfulness. If we're not, then our mindfulness is not gonna really have any uh, 
any power to it. We're constantly going to be jumping around. Each desire, each discontent, each anxiety, it's going to pull us away. So this kind of composure is really vital to our practice. And we kind of know that. That's the image of being a Buddhist, whatever the tradition is that you're following, is this sense of, of, uh, of calmness. And this is why. Without it, practice doesn't really have a chance to engage. The conditions aren't, aren't conducive to it. So in this chapter, you know, we're going to be looking at the role of concentration. For Anlayo, it's in the context of insight meditation, but insight meditation in Shikantaza, uh, there's not a lot of distinction between the two, so important to keep that in mind. Even though looking at the words, it seems like, well, this is a Theravadan teaching. Why are we Zen practitioners working on it? Well, that's why. It's ultimately coming down to the same practice. There are some differences, but the differences aren't that significant. So, and as I've mentioned a uh, number of occasions, uh, if one of the more important Buddhist lists to kind of memorize, to always be able to, to call up in your mind because of their, their centrality for our practice would be the five hindrances. So, you know, the, the strong attraction, desire, greed, lust, uh, the aversion, The restless worry, anxiety, uh, the slothful torpor, and then finally doubts. Not, not questioning, but more fundamental doubt about the whole efficacy of the practice. That needs to get resolved if it's arising before you can really engage in the practice. And that makes sense. You can't fully engage in something that you're, you're that uncertain of. But, and this is an important point, that, that uh, Analayo makes for us, because we might look at this and, and say, well, actually, before we begin working on the Satipatthana, we need to uh, really spend uh, a few years working on the hindrances, because 
can't really go any further until we've got that under control. Uh, you know, Avalio points out that uh, that uh, this does not necessarily imply that desires and discontent must be removed before undertaking the practice of Satipatthana. It can also mean that this activity takes place simultaneously with the practice, that the two are intertwined. So one of the ways to work with the hindrances is to practice the Satipatthana, which is frankly, uh, an important reason why it's worthy of our study. Because of the centrality of, of working with the hindrances for all the Buddhist practices. So especially for those preparing for Jukai, to make a formal uh, uh, commitment to to being on this path, that this is kind of key. And following the precepts is dependent upon it. Because if we're still fully at the mercy of our desires and discontents, uh, now, following precepts is going to be hit or miss. You know, if, if, if desires and discontents are arising, they're going to take center stage. Now the two can, it's not to suggest that the two can't be in some sense compatible sometimes. Like discontents can be in terms of seeing injustice. Or desire can be connected to bodhisattva vows. Uh, beings are numberless, I vow to free them. There's kind of a, uh, a sense of desire in there, but it's a different, it's a, it's a non-self-based desire. It's extended beyond my sense of self. So when we're talking about desires and discontents, it's strongly rooted in my sense of separate self. I desire this for me. I have discontent about this for me, not for someone else, seeing someone else's suffering and feeling some discontent about that. It doesn't make me feel contented to see other people suffer. But those forms of desire and discontent can actually be seen as outgrowths of the practice rather than impediments to it. In fact, 
maybe uh, uh, Buddhist linguistics uh, would be well served to come up with different terms for that because they do uh, the non-self based desires and discontents have a very different flavor to them. And maybe, you know, loving kindness, compassion are pointing in that direction. But to come back to the original point we started from here, uh, just the understanding that, uh, that, that Satipatthana helps us work with our desires and discontents. So it's not like we need to get one accomplished in order to move on to the other. And the further we get into this uh, teaching contained in the Satipatthana Sutra, hopefully that'll become clearer to you how that's the case. Just by to practice mindfulness requires a dropping off of sense of self to really be fully practicing Satipatthana. Even at, at the initial stage, when we get to the first aspect, the body, and, and the first aspect of that, the breath, you know, there's this practice of, of it's not the breathe, me breathing, but it's just the breath. My sense of self drops off and I'm just I'm nothing but the breath that's taking place, the activity happening. There is no entity. That's true of the breath. It's also true of our thoughts. You know, the, the line about thoughts without a thinker. Breaths without a breather. Same thing. And that's true for every activity. Running without the runner. Raking leaves without the raker. All, everything we do can come down to that. There's just the activity and the activity involves all beings. It's this interdependence. It's not me. It's me and the rake and the leaves and all these other causes and conditions that, that are also involved. So with a little conceptual overlay and this meditative practice, it's kind of easy to drop into that. What's difficult is to stay in that mindset. That's the trick. <laughs> you know, it's nothing uh, all that magical or like new agey stuff we're talking about here. It's, it's right in front of us. We get it. It doesn't take years of practice to get that. But the cultivation of the practice, which is what, what makes this uh, Satipatthana Sutra so powerful. It's about a practice that if you fully engage it and continue to engage it, 
it's 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 a way of cultivating your life to lead an awakened life consistently. That's really the impact of it. And why it's a teaching that's so fundamental. So, yeah. we now come into this with the understanding that the practice of Satipatthana can be seen as not requiring, but rather resulting in the overcoming of the hindrances. And therefore, lack of skill in the practice of Satipatthana prevents the practitioner from developing concentration and overcoming mental defilements. And now I'm going to jump ahead momentarily to the final aspect of the Satipatthana Sutra. There's, there's body, there's feelings, there's mind, and then there's dharmas. That final aspect of dharmas includes the seven awakening factors. And the first of those seven is mindfulness. And the sixth of the seven is concentration. And there is a logic behind the ordering of that list. So it's really indicating that, that to develop the seven factors of awakening, the entry gate is mindfulness. And through that, and the others that follow it, one now enters into concentration. And the one after concentration is equanimity. That's the last of the seven factors of awakening. And that sets the stage for the final part of that fourth aspect of, of mindfulness, which is the Four Noble Truths. And the Four Noble Truths is viewed by Theravadins as right view. Right view is you know, the, the realization of, of the Four Noble Truths. And that's circular as well, because when you get to the Fourth Noble Truth, the Eightfold Path, what's the first element of the Eightfold Path? Right view. <laughs> so, so there's a lot of circularity here. Lots of circularity, self-referencing. But we, we should come to expect that from Buddhist teachings. It's part of that interdependence thing. It all keeps bouncing around. What goes around comes around, right? <laughs> Definitely uh, manifested in Buddhist teaching. So, uh, Adelayo points out to us looking at discontent, which is a broad term. You know, what, what, what's really encompassed within that? 
And he, he tells us that discontent stands for any kind of mental dejection. So anything that basically we might have uh, an anticipation of something and we're, we're let down. What if the uh, election day resulted in something different than, than how it actually turned out? I think we all would have felt some strong sense of dejection. And that would have uh, hindered our practice. <laughs> would have knocked us off course. It sure would have me. <laughs> so the hindrances you know, on Analayo's point here is that they can profitably be turned into objects of mindful contemplation. And he infers from this that it seems quite probable that the Buddha did not envisage the removal of the five hindrances as a necessary precondition for the practice of Satipatthana. It's directing our mindfulness to them and continuing to come back to them. And by that practice, we can, we can navigate our way through them. As we'll see, this is the power of mindfulness practice. And this is a point that one of our great uh, contemporary uh, mindfulness teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, always emphasizes that the power of mindfulness for whatever affliction we have, just to have the awareness and keep your awareness there with it. Something like anger. That's why the teaching of be the anger means put your mindful awareness on that and keep it right there. It sounds counterintuitive. You're trying to escape it. But this is the so-called magic of mindfulness is that it's actually by staying with it, being fully present with it, that we can go through it. It's not by turning away from it, pushing it away. Because it doesn't go away. Not really. It stays there. Whereas if we practice with it mindfully, we can go through it. It's kind of at the heart of a lot of uh, uh, practice of psychology that you have to get, get to it, accept it, and move through it. That's mindfulness practice. That's satipatthana. So that's why the, uh, Analayo says the hindrances can profitably be turned into objects of mindful contemplation and thereby help help us along on the path to, to work through the hindrances just by being mindfully aware of them. 
So there's this term that, that uh, Theravadans use, sense restraint, which maybe isn't the most skillful way to, to, to word that. Uh, because, you know, it's, it seems to be suggesting something a little stronger than, uh, than mindfulness of our, of our sensations, which is part of the Satipatthana Sutra. Uh, in more detail, he calls it a stage where the meditator guards the sense doors in order to prevent sense impressions from leading to desires and discontent. So it's it's kind of imposing uh, uh, the overall objectives here. And uh, teachers, I think, especially in, in Mahayana pra practices like Zen, uh, would would be more comfortable. Uh, it's not that that uh, mindfulness doesn't have that impact, but it's it's a matter for for uh, our approach in many instances to just uh, be mindful. So sense restraint is just the practice of being mindful of our sensations, which is part of the Satipatthana Sutra, and being aware of, of the impact they have upon us. When we have a certain sensation, what else arises from that? So that we can become very intimately familiar with our responses to things. And that awareness in and of itself will lead us through it without any you know, preconceived notions. Trusting the practice itself. So once through this practice, one removes desires and discontent, and I, I'm not, I don't mean to suggest this is like permanent, you'll never have another desire or discontent. It's just at this time, at this moment, then uh, you're ready for more advanced levels of Satipatthana. And it can be termed well-established, that you can enter into that path. But see, our minds turn it into like a permanent condition, because that's what we do. It's not that. It's at this moment. And when we see we're free at this moment of desires and discontents, and we enter that path, we can actually stay on that path for, for some stretch of time. The length of time will vary. It's, it's the getting on that path consistently. That's the important thing. It's not this illusion 
that, that we might have that, well, once I get on it, I'm supposed to stay on it. One will find that the more you get on it, the easier it becomes. But we're, we're still these conventional human beings. We're always going to have desires and discontents. We're kind of programmed that way. They basically are there because at least at one time in our past, and I, by our past, I mean our, our, our ancestors, our ancient ancestors, not just within our own life, you know, it served a purpose for them. But for us, you know, something like the, the, the fight or flight response, you know, which served our ancestors out on the savanna pretty well, uh, it's starting to, to uh, pay very diminishing returns to us now. <laughs> Actually, it's far more harmful than it is of any benefit. You know, it's, it's killing us from, uh, from uh, high levels of stress and all the health impacts that has. When the, the reality is we all have pretty secure existences now. You know, we don't have uh, woolly mammoths, saber-toothed tigers, dire wolves that are looking for a meal. We have other forms of stress, but with a little mindfulness practice, we can see them more realistically that maybe they're not quite the threat, that my body, my amygdala, <laughs> according to neuroscientists, is, is you know, trying to trigger. So part of this practice is about uh, being able to, you know, we talk about being attuned to reality. And this is a good example of that. That our reality is we're taking this step. Our, our initial con condition responses may be out of step with that reality. And we need to be present with it, look at it more deeply rather than just strong desire, strong discontent, fight or flight in terms of the, the discontent, the fear. And it's one of the reasons why Buddhist practice uh, naturally builds in more of a, uh, a, a capability of, of resilience. So that the the uh, natural pains of, of life are not so strongly reacted to. They're still, they still hurt, but our response becomes tempered because of our ability to be attuned to reality. 
be able to move through it. And the moving through it, just like with I was describing about the hindrances, always important to keep in mind. It means being present with whatever it is that's arising. As those pains occur, be with them. Stay with them. There's no resilience if you don't. There's running away from. And that's not the solution, ultimately. It's very temporary. But when we talk about sense restraint, this is a practice that as we take it on and really begin to practice it, which students of the Satipatthana naturally do. I know I did. I became part of my daily life. I took it on and, and it's a real transformational practice because now you're aware of feelings and emotions as they're coming up. And you big, begin to appreciate all the causes and conditions for it. And in that, through that, uh, being close to it and the wisdom that encompasses it, that's where the resilience comes from. It's by being that right there in the face of it, face to face, nose to nose. Not turning aside at all. So this sense restraint, Alayo tells us, can be considered part of Satipatthana practice. I think it's a natural aspect of it because we are directing our mindfulness to our, our sensations. And that is sufficient in and of itself. We don't have to approach it from the standpoint of of uh, having our restraint uh, mechanisms at, at the ready. So once I see something coming in, I, it's kind of like a lasso. We're at, at the uh, rodeo and we're going to lasso that sucker. Oh, we're going to, if there's any lassoing, it's just in terms of, of being present with it. Being aware. Be aware. That's really how we get attuned to reality, to our lives, is by being aware, not letting all these things go on uh, completely kind of under the radar screen and, and still 
having their impact on us. And by the time we become aware, we're engaged in it in ways that have led to strong desire, strong discontent, and we're really knocked off base. This is the power of mindfulness. Is that through awareness, being fully present, we're fully connected to our lives in their interdependent nature as it's constantly impacting us. And through that awareness, over time, cultivation takes place. And things that used to really knock us for a loop, all of a sudden, it's not quite the loop-de-loop it used to be. Maybe it's just a little bump now. It doesn't mean that it's just a a smooth highway, but Maybe it's maybe it's not the wild ride that uh, that it used to be. It's far more comfortable, and that comfort allows us. It becomes reinforcing to our practice. So there is a feedback loop that gets created here, which hopefully you experience. Hopefully you have already from your practice and by uh, really engaging with a practice like Satipatthana, uh, hopefully that will uh, help to enhance it. So that the more stability we can have in our lives, it furthers our practice and the loop continues. That's the positive loop. as opposed to the loop that's threatening to throw us out of our seat. So while this chapter is about concentration, the initial stages of Satipatthana practice may not require the prior establishment of a high level of concentration, or as we were just uh, looking at, or the complete removal of unwholesome states of mind. These aren't preconditions to engaging in Satipatthana, which is good news, that means all of us wherever we're at, can enter into it and benefit greatly from it. So concentration, the the Sanskrit term for it is samadhi. And samadhi stands for collecting oneself 
in the sense of composure or unification of the mind. Not being scattered, being focused. And unification is a good descriptive term here because it points to what this, uh, it, how this leads to an understanding of no self when one becomes unified with your activity. Then self drops off and there's just the activity. That's the fruit of unification. In unification, it's another term for, for non-duality. So we don't have this sense of a separate self, self-object duality. And that's being attuned. So as I've uh, mentioned uh, in, in earlier talks uh, on more than one occasion, in the Theravadan tradition, generally speaking, when, they, when uh, they're talking about concentration, there's a system of meditation practice they're referring to known as the jhanas, which means the absorptions. And there's a system for that which uh, Zen does not engage in, that, that particular system. Zen certainly engages in Samadhi. It's just that they don't practice the jhanas. So we're not gonna to spend too much time looking at the jhanas. But the entry gate to the practicing with the jhanas, maybe the most important thing for us, is seeing that one at this time is free from the hindrances. So when you engage in the meditation practice known as the jhanas, that's the entry gate, is to direct your awareness to the hindrances, so that if any of them are present, you put your attention there and allow those to drop off. Until that happens, you cannot enter into the jhanas. And the, the next jhana is actually joy, the sense of joy one naturally has upon the understanding that you're free from the hindrances at this time. Not forever, but right now. To be free of the hindrances is pretty wonderful. So when joy arises, bam, now your focus is on that joy. So that's the starting gate. 
pretty good, right? <laughs> it's a wonderful practice. <laughs> but then in its progression, it gets ramped down until ultimately on that track, you end up at equanimity. Where rather than having this really joyous feeling, you're just totally at ease. And it's kind of like uh, uh, maybe an idealized version of Shikantaza. It's like, you know, meeting. And, and in fact, I mean, as I've mentioned before, uh, Rebbe Anderson used to teach uh, Zazen practice as being this this uh, awareness with complete relaxation, which is kind of equanimity, so that we're we're present, aware of each thing coming up, but we're completely at ease with it. So that's the one of the jhanas equanimity. And then from there, they you uh, slide over into what they call the formless jhanas, which are things like infinite space, infinite consciousness, no thingness. And then the last one is neither perception nor non-perception. So that's enough said on those. Uh, uh, you know, if anybody does want to pursue it further, and, and I did go through a stretch of time many years ago where I did, you know, I can certainly... Uh, offer some guidance to you uh, in, in doing that, if that's a place you feel called to, but uh, uh, not too many Zen practitioners, I think, do feel that call. Uh, and it's you know, not, not certainly not necessary. So that's a matter of kind of personal uh, disposition, inclination. So right concentration as this sense of, of unification of the mind. And the important additional add-on to that is it's unification of the mind in interdependence with the other seven path factors. And we've, we've talked about this in connection with mindfulness. That mind, right mindfulness is mindfulness in its interconnection with the seven other path factors. This is true for right concentration as well. It's true for all the eight path factors. They don't exist independently. They only exist as part of this web of interdependence, which is one of the issues with with the mindfulness movement, potentially, when it's pulled out and just treated on its own, then it's easy to kind of uh, pick apart because mindfulness can be directed to all kinds of, uh, of uh, crazy things. You know, you can be a very mindful uh, uh, politician that's engaged in, in politics in some of its uglier uh, senses. Be a mindful uh, burglar. 
mindful of most anything. So always important to remember any aspect of the Eightfold Path. It's a package deal. We look at each one individually, kind of like the jewels in Indra's net, but they, they come in that package. So to, to study one and really understand it involves ultimately getting around to all of them and practicing them all to really pra fully practice any one of them in the sense of right mindfulness, right concentration. Because the the danger is that when we hear right in our normal take on that term, we think, well, right concentration means we're really going deep. <laughs> now I've got it. <laughs> That's our sense of right. You're really good at it. That's not the case. It's got to be, you could, you could be so deep in the, that concentration. And this happens with people practicing the jhanas that it becomes kind of addictive. You can get into it so deeply, so readily. You're really good at it, but you'd never want to leave it. Now, it's not right concentration anymore. So... Right does not mean you know, that kind of really deeply get into it. Right means it's, it's uh, connected with the other seven path factors. And right literally means togetherness, to be connected in one. Wholesome, sometimes it's called. That's important to keep in mind. Or a talk I gave quite a few months ago at Jokoji, this sense of being with the togetherness of all things. Being is to be with. Our sense of being tends to be my existence. No such thing. It's always being with. And that's true for these Buddhist teachings. They don't exist on their own. It's always being with. All teachings, even the teachings of comic strips, <laughs> they're all, everywhere, everywhere. But the experience of absorption, of concentration, this kind of dropping off of self, that Dogen speaks of, dropping off of body and mind. It, uh, 
it's a powerful tool to diminish our craving and attachment. Craving and attachment is based upon a sense of separation. Things we crave are things we sense as being separate from us. The more we can experience an absorption in the world, a oneness with things, it really naturally tamp tampers down our cravings and our attachments in regard to all five of the senses. It's not that, you know, desires don't arise. I'm talking about just, again, it's, it's been leveled out because we don't see things as being separate from us. That we're without. And this is what also builds in a sense of resilience because we go through stages where we will find that we're without things in that conventional sense. But it's not as impactful as such because of the understanding that we're always in this web of interdependence. And we feel we we feel that through the practice of understanding that at the most fundamental levels, you know, with each in-breath, with each out-breath. basic aspects of our existence that we take for granted. This is one of the key elements of beginning practice is we find we're devoting attention to things that we were so mundane we'd never pay attention to before, like our breath. You know, how insane is that? <laughs> what kind of practice is that? It's always there. It doesn't need my attention. It doesn't. <laughs> it's going to keep going whether you're paying attention or not. But when we do that, this sense of unification is, is the impact. So all these mundane things about our life, you know, each step as we're walking, Uh, each dish, you know, each motion as we're washing a dish, a pot, a pan. Unification. As opposed to our usual view of being separate and racing ahead. Wanting to be doing the next thing that will be better. This place it's, uh, there's just something about it that we keep going ahead. 
I remember one time uh, when Karen was here for uh, a, a extended sewing practice and uh, she and her husband, Tom, used to stay uh, with uh, this doctor who is a woodworker, uh, just like Tom with his art. And, uh, and his wife was a uh, rather accomplished uh, a potter uh, would create these wonderful ceramic works. Uh, and they had this beautiful place, uh, just a stone's throw from Holden Arboretum. And we, when we'd go out there, uh, there was one time they had a, a good sized pond on their property. And we went out and we did a period of zazen in the middle of, of the day of, of this sewing practice. And, uh, and Tom and Karen joined us and, uh, and it was just the perfect day, perfect temperature, no bugs were out. And it doesn't get any better. Comfortable, comfortable temperature, sun, sun shining. And, you know, when, when we finished sitting, you know, people were sharing uh, their experiences. And, and Tom made such an insightful comment. He said, you know, even this, this most perfect of, of, of things. And yet, you know, my mind was, was going forward. I uh, wasn't content just to settle in here. <laughs> That's a natural propensity. I, I think we were all nodding our heads going, well, you know, you're right. <laughs> even if we're in the heavenly realm, that's, uh, still not good enough you know we, we're we're just impelled to keep going forward keep going forward so concentration is and, and this quality of being absorbed is kind of a way of of bringing us back to this being in this moment being with this dish, being with this breath. And that's the power of that practice because that's not our propensity and it takes practice. It needs cultivation. And the deeper we can go with that, which is why Samadhi is important for Zen practice. Then the deeper we can go, in whatever our practice is within Buddhism, whether it's Theravadan or Zen, we're going to be able to, to penetrate it at a deeper level. Because we can be present with it and stay with it. We're not jumping from here to there to there. We develop that capacity to, to have that focus. And there's a great power in that. It's what allows us to develop stability in our lives, to take the practice off our cushions.
So, I mean, Analayo goes through in a little more detail in this chapter the uh, the practice of, of the jhanas. And, uh, and like I said earlier, I, I don't want to spend too much time really going into that in much detail. But you know, if, if that triggers an interest on your part, I'm, I'm happy to you know, discuss that with you uh, in, in, uh, in the context of Adokasan, for instance. But, uh, but you know, it's not something that we need to go down that road in order to, uh, to be able to relate it to, to a more traditional Zen type practice, the practice of Dogen's Shikantaza. You know, Dogen, to my awareness, never referenced the jhanas. And if he did, I'm quite confident that he wasn't uh, suggesting that his students engaged in that. So one of the takeaways, uh, hopefully, that you can, you can take with you from this is an appreciation for when you're free from hindrances. Because it's not, it doesn't just happen when you're formally practicing. can happen spontaneously. I mean, the first, uh, the stories about uh, Buddha as, as a young boy, man, uh, one of the, kind of like his first, we'll call it almost like a Kensho experience, at least an experience of absorption, maybe is a better way of describing it, is when he was out uh, sitting under a tree and all of a sudden he just kind of, boom, entered into that that place where his attention was focused. And that had a po powerful impact on, on him as, uh, as the teaching from that uh, incident uh, got passed down in Buddhism. And it just, you know, he didn't sit down. He hadn't even begun uh, a spiritual practice. It just happened. And maybe you've had similar experiences just out of the blue. You have that kind of deep immersion in something. Maybe it was listening to music. Really listening rather than having it as background. And be becoming absorbed. So it happens. And when, when that happens, if now that you have this awareness of hindrances and freedom from, you can maybe appreciate a little bit more what those experiences are about. And that they're driven by being free from the hindrances 
That's what allows you to become immersed, absorbed. The hindrances keep you in this sense of small self and bouncing around. Like Tom described our Zazen minds on that beautiful afternoon out in Kirtland. Under conditions that should have been fully supportive of becoming immersed. And I'm sure probably most, if not all of us were for very short periods of time. But then stuff happens up in our head. And away we go. No matter how supportive the realm we're in happens to be. That's just the way we are. So what do we do? We just classic zazen practice. Just be aware as, as those uh, distractions, hindrances come up, be with them. Watch them pass, pass on. And then come back. What you're coming back to isn't the important thing. It's the coming back and the fully engaging with. This is where that sense of unification enters it. Dropping off the sense of self. Thoughts without the thinker. Thoughts without the thinker are the thoughts, the clouds that are just drifting on through the sky. Thoughts with the thinker, you know, we're, we've got our lasso out and we, we like this cloud, we're gonna travel along with it for a while. <laughs> so off we go. And then maybe 10 minutes later, we come back and go, oh, Time to come back to just, just this. And so practice goes on. Continuous practice, as Dogen put it. Continuous life. The mountain is walking. And uh, I guess a good place to leave off this morning, uh, since this is a Jukai class, uh, is where Analayo references another Theravadan Sutra, the, the Sonadanda Sutra, which compares the mutual interrelatedness of ethical conduct and wisdom to two hands washing each other. You know, we've talked earlier about this uh, interdependence of all the different aspects of the practice that none of them exist independently. 
So this very much relates to ethical conduct, hopefully in ways that you, you can already see. And uh, over time with the practice, that appreciation of it, I think will, will deepen even further. And as, as Analayo also expresses it, the development of deep concentration leads to a high degree of mastery over the mind. And again, mastery is, you know, but it's hard to find the proper terms for these things. Uh, you know, it's, it's a mastery kind of falling back to Suzuki's imagery and in, uh, in Zen mind, beginner's mind of, of the cow out in the field. And it's not that we're mastering them in terms of, of uh, tying them to a post. It's just that we're watching them. That's all. So it's a very, uh, <laughs> very uh, uh, gentle mastery. It's a, it's a natural mastery that flows out of mindfulness practice. Although as the ox herding pictures, for those of you familiar with that series, uh, you know, there is a section where, where the uh, young uh, student, uh, you know, grabs, grabs a hold of the ox, is mastering the mind. Wants to wants to hang on to it, but that's uh, that's not the final stage, of course. <laughs> yeah, he, he has to let go. <laughs> that's part of the path too. So, anytime you see the term mastery, it's it's good to keep that in mind. There is a sense of mastery, but it's it's kind of plays out in a different way than what we usually think of when we hear the term mastery. And then I, one last thing, because this relates uh, Dogen's teachings on Zazen are derived from, uh, I think it was like his great grandfather on the, uh, on the Ketchumyaku Hongji, uh, who taught silent illumination. So the silent part of it is the tranquility, the serenity. And the illumination is insight, insight meditation. So Analayo points out the need for balance. And the good news is it's a balance that kind of naturally arises. So it's not like we're fighting to keep it in alignment. It's just something to be aware of. That one, and this is uh, pointed out by Hongji in, uh, in the guidepost of silent illumination. That if, uh, if one, here, so let me uh, go right to the word, exact wording, but it, it talks about when, uh, if we neglect one side or the other, how that becomes a problem. Uh, yeah, here it is. Uh, 
if illumination neglects serenity, then aggressiveness appears. Yeah, one can uh, can become kind of like this uh, know-it-all. I've, I've got it. But if serenity neglects illumination, so we just like hang out in the jhanas. We're really calm, calm folks. Then murkiness leads to wasted dharma. You know, we we don't develop the wisdom, the deeper understanding. So the two, this is what's pointed to in terms of the balance. And this is coming from a Zen perspective, the balance of silent illumination or of calm and insight. So in this regard, they're to the two complementary aspects of our, what we could term mental development. Mental having to do with mind, mind is Buddha, except no mind, no Buddha, remember. <laughs> so don't get hung up in that, but still, you know, mental development is just, you know, our mind practicing, engaging the way. And that involves this balancing between calm and insight. And so concentration is an important aspect to this. Concentration is serenity. That's why when the Buddha, as a young, young boy sitting under the tree, experienced that when he dropped into that samadhi. When any of us drop into samadhi, under whatever the circumstances are, there's a great calmness. It's dropping off of sense of self. That's being at peace. And that creates the conditions for wisdom, for insight and vice versa. As we enhance our insight, it creates the conditions for continuing to establish calm, serenity, tranquility. Insight into impermanence, interdependence. Having awareness of these is conducive to calm. tranquility, because those are things that can become, without the insight, they can really throw us for a loop. So that's pretty much what I had to share with you on chapter four, dealing with uh, the relevance of concentration. I'll end my piece here and open it up for any questions or comments you might have.
we were talking about the, the unification of things with the other path factors. And so I think last time, right, we were really focused on the mindfulness and this chapter was really focused on the concentration. The other, I guess, path factor that seems to be in the wheelhouse of, of Zen is effort. And um, didn't see a lot of that in this text. I'm just wondering if you could give just, you know, just a little insight into how effort, you know, is relating to both of those and kind of those in, in our Zen practice. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. And uh, I'd start the answer by saying that, that uh, effort is actually uh, lumped together with mindfulness and concentration in the Eightfold Path. Uh, those eight aspects are grouped into three overarching aspects of the practice. So right view and right intention are wisdom, one, one of those aspects. The next one uh, of, of, of precepts, virtuous action, would be uh, right action, right speech, right livelihood. And that's five down, three to go. The last aspect is meditation. Effort, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. So in order to engage in mindfulness and concentration requires constant effort. Not that effort isn't involved in the others too, but in terms of the way Buddhists have grouped it, you know, they, they've seen that as being most appropriate with those two. And maybe from our practice, we can appreciate that because, you know, when uh, in two weeks, when we go on uh, Sashin here, uh, you know, the heart of the practice is meditation. And that's certainly true for Theravadans too. When they come together to do a retreat, they're mostly doing meditation. They're Dharma talks. Uh, and such, uh, but but most most of the time they're meditating, and there's that sense of this is effort. This is effort, requires energy, and that's where the posture comes into play. Being upright is and focusing on our breath so that we are breathing deeply. All of these things, uh, parts of of zazen practice. Uh, are developing energy so that we can ex expend the effort. Because if we think about it in terms of what we're doing that day, it would be like, oh my gosh, I can't do that. <laughs> but lo and behold, when, we're, when we do it, miraculously, the effort seems to naturally come forth. So that's, uh, if that helps answer the question, that's where effort really comes into play here with, with uh, mindfulness and concentration. They really are tightly in, intertwined. It's just that maybe for us, uh, because it seems to come naturally, not the first time we sit or the second time, but eventually you know, we, we almost take for granted the, the effort because it's part of the practice. If we, if we do it, you know, the first two 
pillars of, of, of uh, meditation practice are posture and breath. And if we, if we follow those, effort just naturally unfolds. Keeping the eyes open for zazen practice, that helps. So we've got all these little things that, that are coming into play to, to help boost the effort and keep it going. Otherwise, yeah, we couldn't do this. <laughs> and then even this, um, I guess, the Satipatthana practice where you're starting with breath and then moving on to body, it kind of, even though it's a mindfulness of that, I, I guess that it's also accompanied with, you know, an amount of effort to maintain that kind of focus or posture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the breath, uh, may, they kind of borrow that from, from uh, uh, the older Indian practices uh, uh, that, you know, it, it, throughout yoga. I mean, breath is, is foundational. So there's a reason for that. Thank you. Um, this, this chapter is really twisting my head around. I have an overarching question about the difference between uh, insight and mindfulness. And at the end of the last chapter on page 63, he compares the two. Um, basically, my interpretation of what he's saying is Um, mindfulness sort of takes insight to the next level. It opens it up wider. You kind of include the bigger picture along with what it is you're focused on. Mm -hmm. And then I thought, well, good. That sounds like what I want to be doing. But then in the next chapter, it's all about concentration. Yeah. Yeah. Which is like insight rather than mindfulness. So could, could you expound on the differences and where we're going with this in this chapter? And Yeah, and, and I think maybe as a starting point, uh, just rather than to make it a, into a linear process that like this stage precedes this one, precedes this one, to bring it back more to the interdependence between all of them. So that to begin with, uh, with uh, the mindfulness and the, uh, the insight is that mindfulness kind of is, mindfulness in a sense is kind of like uh, similar to Dogen's practice enlightenment. Uh, so mindfulness is certainly a key element of practice, and it's not separate from insight, that we have to have awareness in order for, for insight to take place. And, and to relate it back to mountains and waters, and, and uh, Dogen talks about practice verification. So the, the verification is the insight, and then that's uh, a reinforcement to the practice, to the mindfulness. So they're, they're kind of mutu- in mutual uh, engagement there, rather than seeing that one leads to another. 
uh, it's, it's a, there's a mutuality. And that's kind of part and parcel of interdependence rather than being a linear thing. It's, it's a, all, everything coming together, the Indra's net imagery, everything comes together for this practice. And all these energies. So then if we introduce concentration, it's, it's in that similar vein that concentration is also an important part of that mix. It's naturally in attunement with insight, with mindfulness, and they all join together. And we could take all the other aspects of the Eightfold Path of the practice and throw them into that same stew. And, and it's, it's still the case. They're just additional reflections of each of those things. So it's, it really is just one practice. That's the important thing. It's one practice, but we can look at it from all these different aspects because our normal kind of like, uh, uh, even if we're not engineers, we kind of have that mindset of, of you know, the, how the pieces fit together. And, you know, this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And interdependence is this holistic view that, well, you know, sometimes that, that's helpful. And that's why we, we uh, uh, technology works. But the reality behind that is that all things are coming together. Like in ecology, you know, we can, we can uh, trace certain, certain things, but then, you know, the, the accelerator effect that would, that, you know, concerns everybody is we can follow it linear in a linear fashion but as all these things you know resonate with each other the ultimate impact may be a hell of a lot worse the the uh the the whole may be greater than the sum of the parts <laughs> in other words and that's kind of <coughs> a core aspect of of uh, interdependence is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. So the practice is, you know, we've got all these parts to it, but the practice can't be, that's what makes it kind of beyond our description. We, uh, we can, because we're these linguistic creatures, we, we talk about it in all these different ways, but even, you know, we, we mix all that together and the practice is something greater. Practice enlightenment. That's another one. Dogen is basically saying uh, you know, that practice is this coming together of everything. It's and, and that we diminish it by calling it a means to an end, that we practice in order to attain enlightenment. So I think this is actually, as I'm mouthing these words, it's, it's a really uh, apt description for, for what Dogen's teaching was about practice enlightenment. Practice is, is the whole thing. It's all the parts coming together. It's the entirety. And we are it through our practice. So that's kind of taking the, the pieces 
and throwing them in there to our practice. And it's our practice in its entirety. That's, that's it. It's the enlightenment. Thank you. I, I was looking at it very linearly and, um, and that helps a lot. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> and it's, it's okay. We all look at things linearly and uh, that, that has its part, place too. I mean, we can't, as soon as we start using language, it, we're using, it's, it's a linear mechanism. But one of the beautiful things about language, and this is where it gets short shrift by Zen sometimes, is language actually has the capability to, to bring us to, to the infinite, the eternal, the boundless, the way it can be used. So it's, while it's a tool that was designed initially to be linear, but it's not limited to that. Actually, it's, its capabilities transcend that realm. But they're not often used that way. Usually it's a tool to, to accomplish specific goals and objectives. Until we're reading spiritual texts or, or rich poetry and then all of a sudden it's, wow, <laughs> this, this language is magical. You know? This has really taken me to, to some deep places. Yeah, I knew the, the one-handed gosho. I knew what the other hand was up to. <laughs> but you're muted. <laughs> Still muted. Yeah. There we go. There a question uh, out of, I, I know I had mentioned to you when we were out to Jokoji, um, something that had happened to me about having an, uh, I was meditating, I had an earworm of Sweet Caroline that kept going over and over and over in my head. And the, the funny thing that happened and the question I have is about concentration and what seemed to be my understanding that concentration is really where you choose to put your attention within your brain. Yeah. And, and the way that came to me was I felt very focused and concentrated. I wasn't thinking about it. I could still hear the earworm softly in the back of my head. It was there. I was aware it was there. I wasn't listening to it, mm -hmm. really. But I was aware it was there. And it made me think about how we use concentration in that way. I mean, I had always assumed, okay, you shut this off, you turn this on. And, and I'm not sure that's really how it works. I think it really works by 
this is where I put my attention. The other stuff is still going on somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a good point to bring up because this is one place where Zen and uh, Theravadan tradition can really diverge because in the, the Theravadan tradition for jhana practice, th that scene is really being an absorption so that you're kind of oblivious to anything else going on. I mean, I've read accounts of if if uh, if the Buddha was was engaging in jhana practice, you know, a major storm could could blow through a monsoon, and uh, he'd be oblivious. Uh, whereas in Zen, you know, because of this practice of shikantaza, of of having our focus on what's right here now we would be aware of whatever's going on. We can, uh, we have that suppleness to our ability to be mindful. So that rather than being locked in the way jhana practices, that you're, you are literally absorbed by the object of meditation. We are not attached in that sense, uh, but we're, 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 concentrated we're focused but as something else happens you know we we can move we can shift and i you know i'm not saying one's better than the other but th there is a difference there's a difference yeah well and and So is that the degree of concentration, that absorption? Yeah, yeah, that, that I, I get. And I think, uh, you know, if we put it, they've done all this, uh, the neuroscientists have looked at what's going on in the brains of meditators so that you know, people doing jhana practice, uh, you know, they would they would start engaging what is it the theta waves uh, uh, in their brains, and the difference for Zen practice isn't the depth of the practice so much as it is that they that we can be responsive to things, so we can shift. There might be a blip, in other words, in our scope uh, if we were so wired. Uh, but then we come right back into the new object, whatever it is that's arising, and we'd settle there. So we don't have that sense of being completely locked in. Right. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little more about the the effect of of, of doubt? You, you mentioned early on that the doubt is one of the hindrances, but then there's also the the kind of the doubt that comes even before the practice, the doubt about the whole practice itself. That that that, that being you have to somehow overcome that particular doubt before the the little doubt of the hindrances can you can just sit with. Um, I was having a, a little bit of a revelation this last week. 
you know, watching the whole political turmoil going on in Washington and, and looking at the, the process of trying to inquire into what's happening, like what happened with, with January 6th. Yeah. And the fact that Congress is looking at this, but yet half of Congress was involved in what happened. So how can you investigate something when part of what you're investigating is the body itself or the, the, the group itself or the thing exactly. itself that you're doing? Exactly. So that when, when meditating, you know, how do you deal with the fact that part of, part of what you're observing is something that should be doubted or that something that isn't quite reliable of a, of a witness to what's going on, that your, your mind is kind of playing tricks on itself, um, causing, causing this sense of doubt as to what am I really doing? Why, why am I doing it? What, what is all this really about? Yeah. You know, um, and you know, I've always been a student of, of Descartes with the the omnibus dubitandum est, you know, everything is to be doubted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah. and we have people that are that are caught in these rabbit holes of conspiracies and and they don't question those 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 things. And I tend to question a lot more about stuff, even even the, the practice, you know, why, why am I sitting on this cushion for hours? Yeah. Um, getting lost in these thoughts and coming back and getting lost in these thoughts and coming back and um, and uh, so 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 there's there's a big sense of sometimes I just want to say well what, you know I want to quit you know it's just, mm-hmm. this is too hard this is too I'm right. too frustrating um, yeah. and so so is is there a difference in doubt between just regular existential doubt about things in general or is there is there a doubt that just pr- makes the practice just not workable? Well, the and and actually the hindrance is the big doubt. Uh, the the other type of doubt is actually part of the practice. Uh, in terms, it's the second uh, of the seven awakening factors. The one right after mindfulness is the investigation of dhammas of of things. So we naturally, from the practice, we do investigate things. That's part of of getting attuned with reality. We can't do that if we're not uh, coming up with questions. Actually, in Zen, questions are really at the heart of it. They're far more important than the answers. Uh, it's, It's having the questions come up. Uh, that can't maybe be answered, but but they can. Uh, so the point of responding to those types of questions, uh, and I'll I'll try and respond to 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 yours about uh, how to practice with with the kind of doubt you're describing about the the value of, of sitting for extended periods of time of practicing like a sashin. Uh, it's it's really not about this expansive period of time because that's just an idea in our head that you know that I'm gonna sit for, for four days or however long. It this practice actually where it connects with Descartes is that it comes back to right here and now. 
So what we're doing during a session is we're saying, I'm going to devote myself to being fully present, kind of like Cartesian meditations. Uh, I'm going to be fully present and, and see what's, what's going on. That's our practice. We're just saying that there's val- we think there's value to, to allocating a considerable amount of time to doing that to kind of unplugging from our normal routines and just be present with what's happening right now. But the practice is really about this moment, not about four days or anything of of accomplishing anything. That's why the practice is the enlightenment. It's not uh, a means to an end. So if I practice for 10 years, I'll, I'll get somewhere. It's about, it's happening right now. It's not happening any other time, any other place. It's always happening right now. So it's really just a matter of me getting tuned into that. That's what Sashin is is about, is giving ourselves the opportunity to get tuned in. But it's a moment by moment practice. Always is. That's the only, only way it takes place. And everything else that pops up in our head, evaluating it is just ideas. And Descartes would know what to do with them. <laughs> They're not real. <laughs> Let those drop off. <laughs> so from Descartes, we get to phenom- the phenomenologists, and that now we're really uh, getting uh, closer to, to the track that, uh, that Zen practice is on, is, uh, is coming back to the things themselves, what's really going on, and, and bracketing, as they said, everything else. So does, does that help at all? I, it, I think it helps a little. I, I think I'll, I'll I'll save my follow up for maybe a dokusan sometime. Okay. Okay. It, it goes a little a little deeper than than, than that. But uh, and I have to, have to actually jump off. I've got a meeting at noon. So, so, so. okay. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always good to have you with us. And your question every time you you hit the unmute, I know we're going to go to a deep place. So I, I always appreciate that. Thanks, Steve. Uh-oh, go ahead, Mark. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Yep. Uh, it's not a very deep question. It's just about a bark. <laughs> it's about a uh, everyday life um, experience of a barking dog, a neighbor's well, barking deep, dog. Huh? <laughs> and <laughs> it, it's definitely deeply penetrating um, and disturbing my samadhi, but... Um, you know, I'm just listening to all this and taking it in, uh, you know, just um, highlights how the hindrances, you know, like the sensory desire of, you know, we, you talk about the seeking happiness through the, the five senses and how in, in this respect with the barking dog, it's like I find myself craving the lack of sensory 
you know, the sound. Yeah. And, um, and how that craving of a lack of sound kicks in restlessness, um, ill will. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's right. just it's like compounding all this stuff. I mean, I've written a letter to my neighbors and thinking that, well, maybe, you know, a, a good neighbor will sort of respect, but for whatever reason, you know, the, the barking dog persists. Mm. And um, so I don't know, I guess I just, what would you have to say, you know, to somebody who's, who's trying to practice concentration and, you know, looking for deepening samadhi, calm, tranquility in one's life. <laughs> mm-hmm. When, when there's this like, oh, God, nagging, persistent, daily, day long type of sound, you know, it's different than every Thursday morning, I know that the um, garbage truck is going to come down the alley. Right. and make all this noise and it's going to go on i don't have to worry about that till next thursday <laughs> and it's a temporary yeah uh type of thing you know um but i don't know you know this wow. situation with the barking dog is uh it's not impermanent <laughs> yeah well <laughs> I'm going to give you two responses. One is a skillful means and one is a deeper practice thing until you can get that resolved. Uh, the skillful means is, uh, I mean, you've got other neighbors. If, if you feel comfortable in approaching them about it, maybe <coughs> their strength in numbers, maybe rather than just you being the lone voice, have a group of you approach um, maybe that could have an impact that's one one way of addressing it the other way which is <coughs> applicable to all of us uh, for for situations where we'll have that arise not permanent like it's it's every day all day but to, you know it'll come up is is to take our concentration and put it on that sound or whatever it is that's come up. So, I mean, I've, I've uh, practiced in some very noisy places and you make an adaptation. Uh, I can remember, and there are times when you know that sound is going to still be there for the whole period of, of that practice, a couple of sittings typically. And your focus then just becomes the sound, become immersed, absorbed by the sound so that you can still practice rather than having the sound be something external that's, that's a hindrance to your practice. So that's the kind of the, the dharma, the practice way of working with that. But as you describe your situation, it's, it needs a skillful means solution that you need to, uh, to, to work at. In fact, uh, one of, 
another uh, specific example I had of working with noise that's closer to what you're describing was the three weeks I uh, pr the three week practice uh, period I did at San Francisco City Center, which you've been into. Uh, you know, that's that's actually a, a noisy part of town can be. And uh, when we were first we first started uh, that first week of practice there. I mean, we were just marveling. This is San Francisco Zen Center, the, one of the meccas of, of Zen practice. And there's all this noise here, you know, and there was a work crew outside and they had a radio. It's like, man, oh man. It was, it was a guy that came in from England and he had this thick accent and he was, after hours, he was saying he's waiting for them to come out and make an announcement that, you know, we're sorry, we're going to, we're going to have to cancel the sashim because there's so much noise going on. We realize, you know, we're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> But we adapted. And, you know, I, I got into some pretty deep practice there. Uh, it was just recognizing that that, that was just uh, the scenario we were in. There was going to be city noise going on constantly. Uh, and just adapting to it. My first teacher, her center, it wasn't as it wasn't anywhere near like what San Francisco Zen Center was. But I mean, it was in at a busy intersection in Evanston, Illinois, and you know we we'd have the whole array of of city sounds going on, and you just kind of uh, yeah, immerse yourself in it. So there are, you know, but your, your scenario is, uh, you know, as a temporary measure, you know, uh, that's what I would suggest, but maybe explore getting some other people to, to join you in trying to, to remedy it, because that sounds like it's, it's a nuisance beyond just your, your Zen practice, but your, your overall life. And that means it's got to be impacting everybody. So maybe you can spearhead uh, a neighborhood movement. Um, mine was real quick, just uh, especially this year and even now find myself almost always caught up in um, desires or discontentment <laughs> and uh, except for when I'm in Zazen. So I'm having trouble carrying it off the cushion. And then um, after the year I had, now I've gotten back out into like the dating world. I'm filled with anxiety and all that, that all that mm -hmm. comes with new relationships and all that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll often find myself, uh, I can only feel anxiety for a certain amount of time and then I'll kind of transfer it into anger maybe instead of acceptance or something. But I guess the only tool I have that I try to use is just acknowledging what I'm feeling, sitting with it when I'm sitting, but then just not, not I don't know if there's any other method where I find myself just lost in anxiety or discontent. Um or desire, uh, any of those three. Cause I feel like I'm just constantly in one of those for the last several months, <laughs> but other than just acknowledging them, uh, 
trying to be, uh, you know, present with them um, and then letting them go. Right. I mean, is there any mm. other, uh, uh, yeah, I don't, don't know of anything else other than those to try. <laughs> yeah. And, um, what you're going through, uh, you know, I'd probably, I'm inclined to, to defer to, to John here because you're, you're, uh, <laughs> you're, you're really, uh, there are limits while, while Zen can be uh, helpful, uh, but there are, you know, major events in life that, uh, that, that you know, I, I don't hold myself forth as being, you know, able to help people work through whatever uh, issues that, that they're struggling with, because there are some biggies and, and you've got one of those that got dropped on you. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. you know, there are some teachers that would say, you know, well, well Zen is, is the tool for everything. I am not a subscriber to that. I think Zen can be helpful for everything, but, but there are other areas that are also uh, need to be tapped into. So that's, that's where, uh, and it's, you, you've got a, a good, strong practice, which will help you. But I think, uh, you know, my, my best suggestion as a Zen teacher is to avail yourself of other uh, yeah. avenues that are open. And I see John is unmuted, so that's good. <laughs> Turn it over to him. I, Keith, I unmuted to say, that he shouldn't pass the buck. <laughs> <laughs> and I have. No, no, no. <laughs> I have. I am working on as well. So I just, just as far as the Zen side goes, you know, I don't, I think that's the only, that's the only route I've taken in, in that regards. But I am working with a uh, 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 therapist and whatnot. You know, so. Good. Yeah, good. Um, Oh, and then just on an, as an aside, kind of, I wanted to share real quick. I think everybody on here, I already shared um, this podcast with the. Uh, whoops, sorry, I'm moving the wrong thing. Right here, the beginners side only. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> oh yeah, the Analayo. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and it's it's uh, by Ajahn Amaro, going over the same text. Um, and it's got, I think, 14 or 15, uh, chat or chapter 15, they're up to, but that's yeah. from 2017. So, I'm, oh, it says conclusion. So, I guess they didn't do all 17 chapters. I don't know what the last two are. Um, and then the other was, uh, oh, that you can find that on Castbox. Um, and I, I thought I shared it with everybody. And then the other, maybe I don't have that open, was the uh, the Analayo guided meditations. I found those very helpful. So if anybody, I think all you guys I shared them with. So yeah, I remember that seeing that one. Yeah, it was very, very helpful. Um, and I want to thank you real quick for the, I uh, listened to the Joe Lovano and uh, Zen Like. Oh, yeah. Two times. Then I listened to the whole album straight through all Thursday night after I think. And the whole excellent album, excellent song. Really enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, when I, I texted Carmen, the funny thing was, uh, last Monday, maybe it was, I saw him in the park and I hadn't seen him for nearly a year. <laughs> and I used to run into him there every few weeks, but he kind of stopped going to the park during the, the pandemic. Uh, so I, I saw him and then within a couple of days, you know, I, I, uh, I see that review. So I had a hunch he probably didn't know about it or at least hadn't seen the review. So I sent it to him. And I had texted him right after I listened to the CD, just telling him how blown away I was by it. And when he texted me back, he, he said, uh, you know, you're a part of, of the formation of this group because uh, of having the first jazz concert we did at the temple was Joe Lovano. Yeah. This was back in 2014. Uh, I think it was... June of that year. And just a real quick uh, sidebar to that, when he first approached me, it was gonna be him with Joe Lovano's wife, Judy Silvano, who's a vocalist, and uh, arguably our, our top jazz guitarist in town, Bob Frazier, the three of them. And wanted, wanted to know if I could uh, put, get that put together at the temple. So I said, yeah, I think I can do that. And then he, he sent me an email about a week later saying there's, there's going to be a special guest. And I think you know who it is. <laughs> and of course, I know who Judy Silvano's husband is. So I'm, I read that at the office. And I'm, I just get up and I'm walking around the office. Oh, my God. <laughs> Joe Lovato is going to play at the Cleveland Buddhist Temple. <laughs> You know, in the jazz world, this is kind of like Eric Clapton's going to come and play. He's like one of the, the biggest names in jazz. So. And then about a week later, he, he emails me and says, oh, and, and Jamie Haddad is going to, to join in as well, who has also highlighted some concerts at uh, the Tri-C Jazz Fest. He's maybe best known as being a percussionist for uh, Paul Simon for many, many, many years, but he's, he's also a leader in his own right. So, and then we had Lovano for three, three different concerts at the temple over the course of several years. So he, he really liked playing there and his wife, Judy liked it at least as much as he did, if not even more. And then Marilyn Crispell, the third member of that ensemble, and I, and I love Marilyn Christel. She's incredible. And when Carmen mentioned to me about her, uh, that he'd been in touch with her through Facebook and, and was trying to orchestrate something. And we couldn't do that at the temple because she was, uh, she's a pianist. But I, I knew the minister at West Shore Unitarian and knew they have a Steinway there. So I, I approached him and he was he was all over it, so we we arranged for her to make. And she's in her early seventies, uh, had never been to Cleveland. This was her first trip to Cleveland, and we put on a very successful event there. So, so that's why Carmen said what he did. Yeah, it's like well, we had all of them come here, and and yeah. uh, they ultimately the three of them came together. So, 
That was, that's why <coughs> if we ever get our own space, that's why I was interested in, in uh, when the Unitarian Church off of Coventry uh, uh, went on the market, because I'd love to get a space that was large enough to where we could get back into the uh, occasional, you know, jazz concert thing. Yeah. I mean, that would be nice. On top of all the other social community engagement that it would allow us to, to do. So, yeah, well, once we get to the other end of this pandemic, uh, well, and I get through the end of my uh, uh, alimony adjustment termination <laughs> county uh, domestic relations court uh, allowing it we're almost three years into that now so it's got to wind down at some point <laughs> in fact you know one funny uh, I don't want to drag this on too too much longer but the magistrate that was handling my case uh I found out from my attorney, we've got a new magistrate for the hearing in April because the former magistrate retired. And I, was, I, I wish I had her address. I could send her a card wish, wishing her a, a happy, uh, financially secure retirement. <laughs> my attorney mentioned to me that, that the irony wasn't lost on her. <laughs> <laughs> so all right thanks may our intention, intention equally penetrate every 